0: Part 2 of Confessions of Two Brothers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Poess and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper. Section 2. I do not think that anyone who has never tried the experiment of making a word portrait of himself can possibly understand its difficulty. To achieve it with any success, one needs one of two things, either an absolute and even ridiculous shamelessness, or a calm, imperturbable psychological insight. The first of these requisites was possessed by the admirable Pepys, and in a less degree by Casanova and Rousseau. The second was possessed by Goethe, whose truth and poetry out of my life is a masterpiece of analytical statement. The method used by Montaigne in his egotistic soliloquies is really a mixture of these two, with an added literary and epicurean unction, which his peculiar temperament supplied. But in all these instances and in many others of less famous reputation, we are conscious of one common element, at once the motive force and the life blood of such an enterprise. I am speaking of a certain definite attitude of the person, thus confessing himself towards the self he is describing. The nature of this attitude I can best indicate by calling it a. Sympathetic interest in oneself. This sympathetic interest we find in all the famous confessions, from that of Saint Augustine to that of Oscar Wilde, nor with the help of it need the humblest autobiography lack importance. My own feeling is that any single person who ever lived, were he the stupidest on earth, could utter profoundly provocative things about himself if only the necessary words could be conveyed to his intelligence i am not the stupidest on earth though doubtless compared with these great ones my intellect is blundering enough and my senses sufficiently dull but were i the apogee of human incompetence there would still i maintain be an immense interest available if i could find the words to hit the exact emotions and feelings which make me what i am it is an insult to common human nature this mock modest philistine notion that it is indiscreet and indecent for an ordinary person to attempt to give expression to his secret identity it is really no more than a form of silly and vulgar pride to be so cautiously reserved it is evidence of a touchy uneasy sense that if one did describe oneself one would betray oneself and shuffle off the pompous hypocritical mask with which one covers up one's foolishness, the reserve which I am speaking is one of the most contemptible qualities of our English and American race. It is on a par with our fussy, self-conscious, and grotesque dignity, a dignity which is only a parody upon the real virtue indicated by that beautiful word. The natural instinctive movements of Arabs or Latins or Indians never really make them ridiculous. It is we who make ourselves ridiculous by our stiff, jerky, spasmodic awkwardness. Reserve in social relations has undoubtedly its place. What could surpass the reserve of the Oriental? But when an attempt is made to carry the social weapon into the sphere of literature and art, the result is only a general paralysis. It is, after all, as Goethe says, the personal which interests us. The attempt to substitute for the personal, any degree of scholarship or erudition, is fatal to genuine interest, both in art and criticism. There is a very widely spread view, current in educational circles, that what we call introspection is a dangerous and immoral thing, a thing from which our youths and maidens ought to be protected. Let them look out upon the world, such pedants protest. What have they to do with analysing and dissecting their own minds? Let them study the works of God and cultivate their bodies, and be sensible and happy. This is all part of that unfortunate, modern craze for what is called being healthy-minded. Introspection and analysis are supposed to be prerogative of degenerate natures, of natures that spend their time in useless brooding because they are inefficient in action. It is a grotesque mistake. One does not read that Socrates was less courageous because he had the habit of falling into introspective trances nor does it at all appear that in the present war all the daring and efficiency is monopolized by the healthy-minded. It is indeed by reason of this deplorable prejudice in favor of reserve, and this ridiculous view that unreserved people are conceited and degenerate, that so little progress is made towards an intelligent understanding by man of his relations to himself. The most entirely reserved person that one has met, call him up in your mind reader, will probably be found to be the most conceited person one has met, and the most opposed to every kind of illumination. The fear of self-analysis is a cowardly fear, and suggests in the persons who betray it that they have instincts and proclivities of which they are thoroughly afraid and still more afraid of letting anyone else have the least suspicion. There is, of course, a quite different type of reserved person, and a very sinister one. I mean the crafty, worldly-minded, predatory scoundrel who habitually wears a mask, and keeps his thoughts to himself because they are base, narrow, greedy thoughts. A person of this kind is not conceited or unintelligent, he is only too clever he plays up to the prejudices of the public and the moral hypocrisy of the preachers with the most shrewd calculation he despises the naive loquacity of unreserved artists and philosophers he holds them as simple fools who in place of quietly plundering the public and enjoying their little vices under the cloak of respectability must needs go babbling forth into the street and shouting out their secret for the warning of all men. Such an one has no time to regard his emotional or intellectual nature with sympathetic interest. His pleasure is derived from the inward satiric glee with which he watches the stupidity of the sheep-like crowd as he shears them to the skin. A person like this is not necessarily a wonderful napoleonic blonde beast he is often more than a little stupid and when thrown off the track of his economic depredations will look like a plain fool in conversation with an intelligent man on such occasions his carefully cultivated reserve sometimes breaks down and he gives vent to little barbarous absurdities full of entertainment for the ironic observer Entertainment one would no doubt derive from any observation such an one might be betrayed into making about this very sketch. Whereas a wiser rascal would only chuckle to himself under his beard, because one more enemy of his class was giving himself away and incurring the malevolence of the mob. To write successful confessions, one must regard oneself with sympathetic interest. This is my own statement but I emphasise it again for a very important reason. As a matter of fact, hardly any human being could be found possessed of average intelligence for whom the successful writing and confessions would be harder than it is to me. For I do not regard myself with sympathetic interest. This is indeed one of my most curious and personal characteristics. I use the expression successful confessions deliberately, for I am fully aware of the ease and fluency, perhaps the too great ease and fluency, with which I can write some sort of confessional sketch. By successful confessions, however, I mean the turning of one's poor portrait of oneself into a true and permanent work of art, and it is that from which I fear I am fatally debarred by my total lack of sympathetic interest in myself. It will be found, I believe, if one reverts once more to the famous writers who have been successful in this branch of literature, that they all regard themselves with enormous sympathy. This sympathy may take the form of imaginative interest, or it may take the form of vivid, dramatic self-consciousness, or it may take the form of tender, sentimental pity, or may take the form of humorous depreciation. In every case, however, there is present a certain caressing tone of love and attraction in their attitude towards themselves. They love themselves well, in spite of all the derogatory things they say, and out of this love they create winning and provocative works of art. I can almost conceive it possible for a person who hated himself to make an attractive though sinister portrait out of his detestation, but I, really abnormal in this, neither love myself nor hate myself. The queer thing about it is that I am a tremendous and unconquerable egoist. I am pliable and unselfish in little things, but in main issues my self-assertion is monstrous how then can it happen that i who assert myself so vigorously have no sympathetic interest in myself i think the explanation or one of the explanations can be found in the fact that i pursue sensations so obstinately that i have lost all power of interesting myself in that thread of continuous consciousness which And our inmost being binds our sensations together. Sensations are continually taking me out of myself and away from myself. In sensations I forget myself. And if I do not forget myself, there would be so much less interest left in me to devote to sensations. I am too much of a pleasure seeker to care to stop and brood over my own being, though half the pleasure of my life is in brooding over the beings of those I love. The great artists and writers. It would be different if I loved myself, then no doubt I should be criticizing and analyzing myself continually with passionate pleasure. Am I perhaps the very acme and apogee of a born critic? I have been led before now into such a conceit, and even at this moment I do not regard it as an outrageous claim. I have this double advantage as a critic, My mind is singularly clear, fluid and nimble, and my sensations are singularly detached, chaotic and unclassified. I can therefore flow with protean agility into the minds and temperaments of others. I can become others and feel myself into their most recondite feelings. And I can do this with passionate pleasure and excitement because I love others while I do not love myself. So many would-be critics are debarred from being interesting and thrilling in their discoveries because they drag with them, wherever they go, their devotion to themselves and their own ideas. I am free of this burden because I have no devotion to myself and no ideas of my own. Side by side with this clear, transparent, unclouded, flexible mind, I have a great many strong and tenacious sensual prejudices. It is necessary to have these in order to write interesting and exciting criticism. For criticism is nothing if it is not extremely personal. In my criticism, I am at once abnormally impersonal and abnormally personal. And that is why I may turn out... To assume my old conceit to be one of the best critics in the world my impersonality springs from my complete lack of convictions opinions principles or any system my personality springs from the inveterate obstinacy of my sensational prejudices and from the curious absence among them of any connecting imaginative link i am in fact as a critic Naturally objective and naturally subjective. Objective because I become with unclouded fluid preciseness exactly what my author is. Subjective because my separate sensations so completely occupy and obsess me. It would be true to say that I live, in a very narrow sense, a double life. I live in my mind which is eternally restless, mobile and light as air and in my sensations, which are heavily weighted, earthbound, and obstinately unchanging. It is no fantastic abuse of language to say that my sensations are chaotic, for though they are so fixed and indelible, they are not in any way connected with one another. They have no intelligent continuity, no symbolic orientation. They are not fused or moulded by any shaping imagination mental detachment and sensual detachment that is the form my life takes and that form is a cul-de-sac an impasse when it comes to any question of improvement or growth my sensations cannot grow because they have no living principle of life in them no imaginative vision no emotional concentration My mind cannot grow because, like a floating film of white mist, takes shape and colour from every single one of the peaks and promontories, which it passes in its erratic wayfaring. I present, therefore, the appearance of the most sceptical as well as the most obstinate of men, and this appearance coincides with the reality. My life is made up of the passive reception of alien ideas, in the passive assertion of inalienable prejudices i believe everything and nothing and i pass from sensation to sensation like a moth from bush to bush end of part 2